Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Welcome to another episode of Climate Justice Coalition podcast. I'm your host for today, Robert Krauss from Center for Applied Legal Studies at Wits University. In the public conversation about mining, one often hears about all the benefits that mining and new mining projects will bring. Commonly spoken about are all the jobs that will be created, all the contribution to national GDP, and all the backward and forward linkages and multiply effects. But what often is not discussed in the public discourse is the sheer costs of mining which span multiple aspects, including the impact on land rights of communities who have to move, and the impacts on dignity and culture and cultural identity that's tied to the land, and environmental health impacts, and also impact on the ability of the planet to sustain human life through preventing runaway climate change. To explore the topic in depth, we have three different speakers which comprise different experiences and expertise to help us unpack and answer the question. The first speaker is Ms. Precious Nongka from Wamua. Wamua is South Africa's largest movement of women from mining affected communities. And as an activist living in communities impacted by the mines on her land, she is in the position to speak of the experience of women um, his relationship to the land and how mining has disrupted that, not only for herself, but also for other women within our movement. Our second speaker of today is Mr. Ramabina Mahapa from the Land and Accountability Research Center at the University of Cape Town. Lark have done extensive research on issues of land rights and its intersection with mining, and more particularly have recently published a report on evaluating rural-based, land-based livelihoods of a community about to be impacted by mining, and which will help us answer the question of when mining comes, what is the full cost impact on communities? The final speaker for today is Professor Patrick Bond from the University of Johannesburg. Professor Bond's expertise is wide-ranging and which includes a political economy of the South African transition and the history of, of South African economic policy, understanding extractivist capitalism and, and, and also the role of South Africa as a sub-imperial power. But today he is here to speak about his work and his understanding in relation to natural cost accounting, accounting for the loss of natural resources due to resource depletion due to mining, and also why such an approach and how such an approach can be integrated into the environmental justice movement. So thank you, everybody. I'll, I think we'll just have a conversation and I'll ask a few questions. First, I'm going to go to Precious and ask you a few basic questions. First, what does land mean for you in your community? And second, what uses are the different ways in which land is important to women in your community? It's what I have explained, Wootsie. We are doing cultural things with it. Uh, we, we do agriculture with our land. We teach uh, our, our kids how to, to create things. Because you know, in, in, in where I live, we have this thing that it's mad. When we can, we can uh, create art, abokamba, with those things. But now since there's this impact that is happening, it's no longer when it's raining, that soil becomes that thing to cravings. So we are living in a, another land that we cannot explain with what's the kind of land we're having. Thank you, Precious. I think you very eloquently described the different cultural and economic um, uses of, of, of land and how integral it is to your way of life and identity. So the second question actually leads from, from where you are going, which is maybe more fully explain how mining, the arrival of mining, has impacted on, on your 
in the different ways that you use land and, and your land rights? Yeah, it's had make it difficult for us to do things here around. Now when women are getting pregnant, they are finally to lose their children since the mind is him. But because we don't have this scientific thing to explain what he, what is these chemicals they are using, we cannot even identify what it's from the mine or it's it's just the enzyme has changed itself. And then women are getting disabled kids with this thing. Because the only thing that uh, many NGOs that have teach us is when the mine arrives, we have to like do the things of like statistics. If the mine X has come, what has changed? We only found out with even the soil, the agriculture, the soil, it's no longer functioning well. And they will tell us we have to do the green light. How can we do that? Because we don't even have the roses to do that since the mine is here. The thing that is happening, people are having sinuses, people are bleeding. So we, we cannot even go, when we go to the clinic to find the statistics, they won't give you, because who are you? We're just a community that is having an NGO. So it gives us a, a, the wrong impact with minds. And then our sisters, because we cannot just to get like work, like they say women, they cannot like go underground, but they hire foreigners. And then our sisters, because of this poverty that we are having, we get involved with those foreigners, we get children. After that, after three years, the contract, it's, it's ended. That foreigner go home, we left with those kids. Almost other kids, they don't have ID because these people are sick. They leave our, sister, our sisters sick, our sisters die. Then we are living. We, we had some problems with those kids with how we're going to get ideas. So with this Elon Uzana, mining, it's giving us a lot of impact because it's end up with us mothers to live with this trouble that we are having now. My next question is given all the different kinds of health impacts, uh, very traumatic impacts that you've described and, 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 and of course, the lack of access to statistics, which is, uh, I know we've also seen that um, in, in, in other areas. What has been the response of mining companies when you've brought these issues to their attention? Okay. Because we didn't have this access to go to the mining, they were like, who are you? You write emails. Sometimes, you know, we don't know how to write this letters that it's supposed to be written. We, we, you cannot get a right or wrong answer from the minds because when we, when we write some letters, they want the, the way they want us to write letters. And it's in a way just communities that we cannot just write what it's our content. But the help of what we know people have a house to help us. And then as we started this thing, a social audit, they call it, it's a leader by the community. We just verify each and everything that is happening in the communities. And then after that, we'll have some meeting with them. This is the things that you have verified from you that you said you are done for us. But there's this illness, they don't know about those things. They will tell you many stories, but this thing, the lack of us as activists is like, we don't have this scientist people. When we go there, they will say, CO Banbani, with carbon Banbani, we combine this and that with what, what the science uh, terms and symbols, and we, we don't know about that. So you go there saying, I want information, I want this, and this it must transpire. When they talk their own language, it's where like we come back. You don't even know how to even engage with your community. I'm back. This is what they say. This is what they say. So I think to us, the lacking is where we have to know about these symbols in order to understand what's the wrong impact with the mining. So we cannot say, Guti, it's because of what they are blasting. It's making us to have sinuses or it's because of the soil, the chemicals or whatever that they are doing that is making us to bleed a lot. You know, people are having us. So we cannot even at clinic, they can say there are 200 people having sinuses. Can we have said, no, we are not allowed to give those things to just any person. So it's, I think it's where the chain breaks. Thanks. It's a very excellent but very sobering answer and, and a challenge that I've heard from many activists. And I think it's some logjam that has to be broken 
that the, the the lack of availability of medical and other environmental statistics it needs to be challenged one and two the whole system of access to expertise not just lawyers but technical scientific expertise communities access needs to be funded by a mechanism and needs to be some kind of independent fund and i think your response just shows the need for that because it's just not on an equal footing these engagements but the last thing i'll have to ask is a little bit different it's just a brief kind of what would you say to other communities that unlike you um the mining operation is a very early stage prospecting it hasn't changed people's it hasn't turned people's lives upside down yet but some people in the community support the new mine coming others don't what what would you say to that community that's that's kind of facing a new mine. Yeah, in the end of the day, we can say no, 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 but we have to like sometimes compromise, say yes. You know, if they, there is going to be a transparent to everything, everyone wants jobs, everyone wants development. We know what mining is coming with the wrong impact. We are fighting for that. You come here, you destroy our minerals. But in the end of the day, if there are those minerals, I think that if it is transparent from companies and DMR, because we can say no, but all we will know what EDMR is going to say yes. So in these communities, like I can make them, they must find the NGOs like Awumakua to make them understand, find the lawyers like Ikals to go through with them. If you say yes, these are the impacts that you are going to go. And then if you have to know there's this thing about the social labor plan that they have to introduce before they come, like give them instructions. You know when you employ someone, you're having these requirements that you want so that they can know what, when they put the overseas dream, I always do that. They always put the mind. You can say no, then NPRTA then comes in and then say, whether you say no or you say what they're going to put it. So when it's there, they must implement with the social labor plan so that people can benefit in the end of the day. It's because of the laws that don't apply to don't apply to the poor people. We have to suffer for them. So the, if there is new company that is coming, I know Guti, I can say no, say yes, but where's the social labor plan? What are you going to develop? What are you going to change? What are our women going to, uh, going to be provided by this mind coming? We don't need troubles, but we need development that is going to sustain because development is something that they say they will sweep on the streets three months contract down the line finish and then people are not employed when something the criteria thing that is going to make people to have careers when their mind is no longer there people they will they will be established people they will develop people will grow without the mind so it's what i can say to, to the new company to the new mind that is coming when the community would say guys what know what is on the social labor plan thank you very much precious i think for a very eloquent description of the need for mining companies to negotiate transparently also to be very clear about what they are actually doing in the slp because a lot of slps are not that very not that clear they make it very vague the commitment but but the the commitments in slps it points to the need for them to be clearer but also for the whole engagement to be more transparent on the basis of equal information and i think one aspect of that engagement which i think is important is actually determining the value of what you already have either the value of your land not market value but all the different uses on the land and i think that's where um the land and accountability research center and and Ramabina mahapa come in because they 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 did a a study with the, with the community on on valuating the different um sources of value and livelihoods on on the on the land and so, so I'll ask a few questions, Ramabina, about your study. And so my first question is just broad. It's just, just describe briefly the kind of focus and aim of your report. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Robert. And so, uh, so the, the research report uh, is on a community called uh, Makaseneni, which is located in uh, northern KwaZulu-Natal. The purpose of the study is to really understand um, how do we measure just and equitable compensation in instances where communities are being relocated or they are losing access to key natural resources that support their livelihood as a result of, of, of mining. 
And so Makaseneni is a community um, which is facing the possibility of, of losing uh, their access to, uh, to natural resources. They are facing the possibility of physical displacement as a result of mining. What motivated this report uh, was that in October 2018, uh, we have a, a constitutional judgment called uh, the Maledu Judgment, which held that owners and lawful occupiers of land affected by mining are entitled to compensation prior to the commencement of, of mining development. But what has been really a key question that has been left out by the judgment, as well as it's not really clear in relation to the MPRTA, is what are the relevant, relevant factors that should be considered in the, determining, uh, the, the, in the determination of the amount of compensation payable to co communities that are affected by mining? So this is a study that really attempts to, to answer that question. Thank you. I think you very eloquently unpacked the aims of, of your study as, as determining how, about approach to determining actually the value of, of land that needs to be compensated. And, and, and I think my follow-up question is, in your study area, could you please describe the methodology you followed and the process of identifying the different sources of value and, and livelihoods deriving from those, from those aspects of the land? Uh, sure, not a problem. So it took us about, about four months to, uh, uh, to collect uh, the data that we, we went there to collect in Makasaneni. We used a combination uh, or multiple methods uh, to really uh, collect that data. So the first was that we had a workshop. 40 residents of Makasanini participated in that initial workshop. The idea or the objective of the workshop was to uh, discuss, find out the range of important natural resources that are available and are being used by Makasanini residents. Uh, what this also involved was the development of lists of natural resources that are collected, uh, that are used most frequently. Uh, we also try to determine the, uh, the, the volume uh, of, of, of their use, as well as uh, trying to determine the location of key natural resources, you know, where people hunt, where livestock graze, uh, as well as areas that are important and that contribute significantly to the cultural and spiritual connection to land. And secondly, Makasanini has 300 households. Uh, we surveyed uh, a hundred of those. So that's a, that's a third of the mm. entire households in Makasanini. So we had a survey which was about an hour long. Some of the questions contained as part of the surveys were about you know, decision-making over land, resources that are being used by each of the households, uh, the quantum of the resources that are being used, the frequency. And then uh, the survey really helped us uh, 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 determine the average value for each resource that is being used across the interviewed households. And then lastly, uh, we also had 20 semi-structured key informant interviews where we identified local community members that are experts in terms of you know, knowledge about the land, knowledge about specific resources. This included hunters, livestock owners, and elderly residents. So those uh, are, are some of the methods that we used in order to collect information uh, for the objective of the study. Thank you, Roman Bina, for this very thorough account of, of, of the multi-pronged methodology of collection. And so I think logically the next stage of the question, which we're very excited to hear and very interested to hear is, firstly, what were the biggest sources of, 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 of value and uses from the land? And, and second, relatedly, what, what was the total per household that you arrived at? And third, what other important findings did you make? So the, the first uh, big really takeaway that came out of the study is that land-based livelihoods were the highest contributing sector. They represented 58% uh, of the overall livelihood income portfolio. Uh, this means that uh, land contributed more to people's livelihood than uh, off-farm income, which was 18%. And by off-farm income, I'm talking about you know, people selling beer, people selling fed cooks, hairdressers, 
uh, uh, people, uh, you know, uh, plaza shops. And then uh, uh, we also had uh, uh, people getting social grants, which was 24%. And so we found that, you know, livelihood are an important contribution uh, to people's ability to, to subsist in, in, in Makasaneni. The second uh, is that the value of land-based livelihood was particularly pronounced in the context of low unemployment. So only about 12% of the households in Makasaneni had a member that was employed full-time. As well as importantly, uh, the outcomes of the study uh, also recognized that spiritual and cultural values of land uh, which extend beyond land being used as, a, as an economic resource. Um, you know, people said to us that, uh, that the land supports their sense of identity and their sense of place, so that over and above, you know, and the economic value of land and what people derive from land, that land is actually important uh, uh, as a spiritual, as well as a, as a, as a cultural resource. And so one of the, you know, just to give you two quotes that we got, which I've, I thought that was quite enlightening uh, based on the last point I was making. One respondent said to us, you know, I'm a Zulu woman. Cultivation is part of who I am. There's another respondent who said that a house without a crowd is just a house, not a home. Uh, in Makasaneni, a kraal is also quite important for, uh, for ancestral, ancestral worship. And so those are some of the, the big takeaways that came uh, out of, of, of the study uh, that I thought, you know, was quite uh, important to, uh, to flag. Thank you very much, Ramabena. It's, it's pretty sobering what lost mining can bring, given first that land-based livelihoods for people in, in community or, or in this community represented the majority or the biggest component of, of, of their livelihood. So mining removes that. I wonder if there's ever been a social neighbor plan, for example, that that's actually gotten even close to, to, to that um, kind of quantum of positive economic impact. But second, the intangible, the spiritual identity um, that's so fundamental to one's life and one's humanity and which can never be replaced and which really points to the importance of the right to say no to mining, but I think on the theme of the vastness, actually, of 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 the of of of, of the the value of rural-based livelihoods and and the value of the land and and the vastness of what is lost through mining, I would like to turn over to um, Professor Patrick Bond, who has done a lot of work in relation to critiquing extractivist economics um, and the extractivist uh, economy that. Um, and, and and the sheer loss to to the South Africa and to and to the and to the continent and the global South, but also who has advocated also for for kind of economic natural cost accounting as part of efforts to to challenge um, the legitimizing narrative behind extractivism. So Patrick, I have a few questions. The first is that in in your writings. You've said that there are two different approaches to evaluating natural resource depletion. Um, could you maybe explain the kind of two contending approaches and which you would advocate that the environmental justice sector adopt? Yes, Robert, it's great to be with you. And also Ramabina and Precious, because everything that they've said in terms of defending the land and the interests of people, defending their environment, defending their spiritual arguments of, uh, you know, of life and its meaning uh, are absolutely critical. And what I try to do is accompany that by um, scaling up to additional costs. When you have a capitalist mining house, their incentive is to externalize. They, they'll toss the broad costs uh, to anybody else, to the environment, to the local community. But there are global environmental problems and there's loss of wealth. So the climate crisis is the most obvious since uh, mining, smelting, processing, transport are the main contributors uh, through the energy intensive users group of the big mining houses to South Africa being the third highest emitter in the world per person per unit of GDP. In other words, we're incredibly addicted. And often, um, you know, the communities haven't really been informed by a very lax government about the climate catastrophe. They'll start feeling it and have already in parts of this country with drought or terrible floods and storms. 
But the damage that we do, especially uh, by allowing these companies to dig, to smelt, to process um, without charging them a social cost of carbon. And that's one part of natural capital accounting is to make sure that we internalize externalities so that we don't have an irrational abuse of resources. And particularly to your question of how how would you do it? There's one way to do it, which is to say, we're going to fine you as a polluter for the carbon uh, damage, the emissions of carbon, or in the case of gas, it would be methane. And um, currently, the price that we should be fining is $3,000 per ton. Now, we're doing about 500 million tons a year. And that $3,000 is determined by the latest climate science, that's the cost of emitting, would be roughly five times the output of the whole country. So it would make a great deal of what we do as mining, smelting, uh, the petrochemical complex, all of the high carbon intensity things, utterly impossible to justify, right? So I do hope that Ramabina, that Precious, you start to use the climate critique of the mining houses when you contest social labor plans or environmental impact assessments, because if it's done properly, then if you don't want them to mine, you've got a very good argument. And then the rebuttal, Robert, as you said, what's what's the, uh, the sort of abuse of this? It's that if uh, you go down this road where you price carbon, you might be tempted to have carbon trading, which is to say, let's privatize the air and let rich countries, rich companies buy the right to pollute. So we definitely want to count and assess a climate debt, an ecological debt. We want the damage to be uh, assessed and then the polluter to pay, and then we want them to stop. And that's different. The second approach is to just have a fee, you know, ecosystem valuation fee, a payment for ecosystem services or a carbon market or a biodiversity offset or some of the terms. And that means that some capitalists will get out there, usually in the financial sector. And we know the financiers are not very good at running their own sector, you know. The monetary and financial sectors are always in crisis, and now they want to get into climate or mineral resources. So I think if we want to do first the climate, which $3,000 per ton of damage is just formidable, we should stop a lot of the mining aside from the minimally necessary mining, because it is so abusive of the climate. And then second, for the current generations and for future generations, it's depleting wealth. And, you know, the capitalist economists who think about the income of a country, you already said it, GDP, gross domestic product, that measures the income, what is being earned when you sell, you know, say, a, a, an ounce of platinum or a ton of iron ore, a ton of coal, uh, an ounce of gold, you can measure the, the income. And that's great. We have income. Uh, we should ask, okay, who's getting the income? Is some of it being transferred abroad through illicit financial flows, as you know, all of these leaks about the offshore tax havens suggest? But there you have income. The damn thing, though, is that these economists don't understand assets or wealth because we're depleting the wealth. We're selling the family silver, which isn't just our generations. It's future generations. It's not really ultimately ethically our right to do so, right, to get rid of something that doesn't grow back like the minerals under, soil, under the soil. And that's where I'd say the other routing for using the natural capital accounts is to tell a mining house, when you're taking our wealth, you're just telling us about the income. You're forgetting that you're taking our community's wealth and our national wealth. It's our sovereign wealth. And once you start calculating that, you find in many cases in Africa, 88% of them, according to the World Bank, you're actually getting net negative returns. You're losing more in Africa. And the, the figures are over $150 billion worth per year. So we're in a really net losing situation by being so resource cursed to depend so much, uh, especially in this current little bubble of mining uh, commodity price increases that we're in at the present. We're just so vulnerable to them crashing, but also to our wealth being taken away by some of the world's nastiest companies, right? So this would be another technical argument that I hope uh, Ramabina and Precious that will appeal to you, that it's not just the damage done locally in your community, it's that your wealth, your undersoil minerals, that don't grow back. They're being taken away forever and you don't get the full value. Thank you for a really a really thorough response to the full extent of, of the loss, N not only due to us to us, but but to but but to future generations. I think my next question I would just request that you maybe expand a bit upon the discriminatory nature of of of, 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 of the way it plays out. Firstly in terms of the global north, global south dynamics, but secondly, in terms of the ways in which 
the costs are disproportionately experienced, including cost of of of, of and, and burden of, of, of reproductive labor, are, are particularly experienced by women. Well, that's right. I'll start with that, I think, Robert, and I know Precious has already articulated it because she very clearly said what happens when the mine is gone. The the resources have been stripped out and we're left with an empty shell, a declining town that uh, people have not been skilled in a balanced economy. And that's precisely right. I often trust women in the mining process because they have a tradition of caregiving and stewardship, right? They think about not only their broad uh, community and their family, uh, what it means to make sure their environment is sustainable, but they also are often uh, looking after the children and they're thinking about future generations. So I'm sure Precious, deep in her heart, understands that when they take away the community's underground resource, That means women have got even more social reproduction responsibilities and their wealth has been stripped and their own stewardship. It's like a matron in the household having the family silver. And then some, you know, drunken nephew comes into the house and uh, takes the cupboard uh, key and opens it up and takes away the family wealth, the, the family silver saved for generations, goes down to the nearby town and find some sleazy, usually a foreign buyer who will give them a small fraction of its value. And then the drunken nephew has a bit of money and goes to the bottle store, gets some more bottles, goes home, drinks some more and vomits. And the matron will probably come home and find, oh, looking at the mine, there's no more minerals under there. Looking at the family silver, it's gone. But what you have is a lot of vomit, a lot of mess to be cleaned up again typically women. And I think when you extrapolate from that micro case, right, of a of a mining community that's just been stripped bare, and the women take on the burden in so many ways of, of trying to heal that land and heal that community. But more importantly, uh, at the global scale, you've got what we could call unequal ecological exchange. In other words, you've got an imperialist relationship where the North or the traditionally Western colonial powers, uh, including uh, also the United States in the in the 20th century, and now joined by what I would call a sub-imperialist layer of countries whose companies uh, come into Africa and loot. And those are very obvious. South Africa has always been the leader of sub-imperialist looting of minerals. But also uh, we have uh, the other BRICs, Brazil, Russia, India, and China as well. And their companies are also very active in Africa doing this extraction. So it's an unequal ecological exchange between poor countries or poor communities even in a South Africa, and the sub-imperialist layer who collaborate. For example, they work very closely in the WTO and the World Bank and the IMF and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to keep the system going. How expensive is it? Trillions of dollars a year go through unequal ecological exchange from the South to the North. It's along with labor uh, exploitation. This is really one of the most important ways that imperialism reproduces itself and keeps poor countries in Africa poor. Thanks very much for for a real powerful description of of, of, of ecological imperialism, but also but also also um, sub imperialism, but also but also um, sexism. So I think my last question for you relates to more about the kind of the way forwardish kind of in terms of. What kind of alliances will be required? What social forces need to 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 unite? And secondly, what kind of set of, in particular, what set of demands should um, the community and environmental justice sector broadly, I mean, along with labour, also be starting to be starting to make, um, and which differ from from maybe what we already have, including so we've already got increasing demand for free prior informed consent. Well, it's such an interesting question as to what local politics might mean, given that the balance of forces in every situation is going to be different. If you take a Maracana instead of AMCU, the amalgamated, uh, sorry, the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Unions, they moved in after worker committees basically dislodged uh, a Comprador mining uh, union, the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, which was in collaboration with a company, Lawn Min 
called The Unacceptable Face of Capitalism. And because they moved in at that point in 2012, when there was a massacre, one that uh, our president, Cyril Ramaphosa, had uh, helped to catalyze with an email to the police saying this isn't uh, a labor situation, it's dastardly criminals, and you treat them, as he said, uh, in, in a pointed manner. So not rubber bullets, but pointed bullets. And so we lost 34 of those mine workers in that awful massacre. And the solidarity around the world and the punishment to lawmen was palpable. A second case of solidarity in the right to say no to mining is in Kalabeni in uh, the Eastern Cape, where uh, the group there, Amadiba Crisis Committee, has had such a visionary approach to saying we want to defend our spiritual sites, our land, our ecosystems, our ecotourism potential. So therefore, their alliance is uh, a little different. They don't have organized labor, but they've got people of goodwill across South Africa, across the world. They put pressure on an Australian mining house, including its London financiers to, to pull out. There's been an exceptional uh, coming together. And a third case is uh, in Somkele in KwaZulu-Natal, where Vikila Nchengazi, who was a matron of that a movement of the Mkeju, the Mfulosi Community Environmental Justice Organization, which Precious works closely with, with uh, Wamua and Makua and um, other groups, good lawyers in All Rise, all sorts of allies, uh, the Global Environmental Trust to make sure that conservationists are allied with uh, communities instead of the traditional role in which white conservations were the enemy often of communities. And I think it's in each of those ways. In that latter case, what we're hoping is that um, international National solidarity will mean that the company, it's called Petmin, can be challenged also in its international acquisitions. They're trying to get $474 million uh, out of South Africa or with uh, loans and investments from U.S. Uh, uh, investors to build a big pig iron facility. So there are people in Ohio in the United States very aware that this is a company that uh, on its uh, attempt to expand its coal mines into um, Somkele, whatever uh, connection they had to the uh, push into that area where Fikile Nchengazi lived, led to her assassination in October a year ago. And I think those are the sorts of micro cases where in each of those, international solidarity and hatred of the companies was part of the weaponry that, uh, at least in the case of Kalabeni, has been successful in keeping the company at bay. And in the case of the Maracana workers, helped them to get uh, the 12,500 rand a month that they demanded. And then I hope in the case of Sonkele, uh, in coming weeks and months, will halt the expansion of that coal mine. But in each case, what we really desperately need is an alternative. And that's where I think the most important ultimate allies are with the Climate Justice Coalition to try to get labor like the South African Federation of Trade Unions, uh, the environmental groups, 350.org, uh, all the allied groups that are part of this coalition to really work hard uh, to develop a just transition that would give the alternative to uh, the communities in Somkele, the mine workers there, so that they don't have to be coal workers forever, or to have some alternative to the Australian company in Kalabeni, or to think about a very tricky question, will the rhodium and the, and the palladium that's part of platinum mining, will they be important for a hydrogen cell that could be an alternative to uh, carbon dioxide-based uh, energy. Now, that's a very tough question because palladium and, and rhodium in the platinum metals group may be partly like uh, ilmenite, which is a mineral in Kalabeni that the activists are trying to stop from being mined. They may be important, uh, as is lithium in Bolivia and Argentina and Chile and China and DRC in batteries. These could be uh, important for a green economy. And that's why openly talking about the full cost accounts and thinking about climate will help us do much better planning. I don't think within capitalism, we're going to get that, uh, let's say, balance. We're going to continue to see companies like the ones I mentioned, strip the mines uh, of, of the wealth and then run away and do massive climate damage. And therefore, an eco-socialist orientation to planning and thinking through with the whole society. Do we need that ilmenite? Do we need uh, the, the palladium and rhodium in the platinum metals group? Do we need lithium? Or can we find other ways to store energy that aren't going to be reliant on 
rare earth minerals and and these other uh, uh, minerals and metals. And I think that's actually one of the ways the Climate Justice Coalition is well suited to have a good discussion with all of these groups on the ground fighting against abuse, because they'll also see the big picture. And it's in that fusion of the global and the local that South Africans have always done so well, for example, by saying we need sanctions against our national companies to get rid of a white government, the apartheid regime. And we need, therefore, international solidarity to hurt our economy, even though it might hurt us in the short term. When Labour did that in the mid-1980s, well, the end of apartheid was just inevitable. And I think it's going to be that kind of visionary thinking into the future, uh, considering future generations, big picture questions like climate crisis or the wealth of countries. And I hope the Climate Justice Coalition with organic intellectuals, you know, like the ones we're talking with uh, and thinking about on the ground who know what their communities want, but also have a very good sense of their role in reproducing life itself. Thank you very much. I mean, I think it's Certainly, to me, very clear that um, that the capital system, driven by the the lust for profit um, and individual interests of individuals and companies, cannot d- deliver the planning needed to to actually have a rational approach to is is mining here really needed for society as a whole, um, and and if not, can alternatives be explored? I think that that takes us to the wrapping up of of this really important conversation. Um, because we've had a lot of very interesting observations from 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 all three speakers based on on their own experiences and knowledge, but I think also in the conversation now everybody's had a chance to 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 listen to each other as well. So I think it is only appropriate to give each speaker a, a brief chance to wrap up, and I'll give a bit of a guiding question, but ultimately. In the wrap-up, you should provide with whatever you think is the most important thought that you haven't expressed before in this conversation. And and so I'm going to go in the same order as before. So first, I'm going to ask Precious to wrap up and maybe just, and this is addressed particularly to progressive forces in civil society, what, what more should be done to to ensure women's land rights and livelihoods Women in mining communities, your lands and livelihoods are protected. Okay, thanks, Rob. The only thing that I could like to say is communication. I think uh, when these companies are coming, they they give us this this language that people they don't understand. If they can start coming to the communities with the the community's language, I think it will be great understanding. And then the other thing that it could change between us, the lawyers, uh, and the Lundusana and the companies, it's knowledge. If we can get more knowledge about these companies, the lawyers, uh, like you guys, I, I cannot talk with Carl's because Carl's is always with us with, in the ground. They know our fear with the minds. They understand our frustration because they are always with us whenever we are doing door-to-door, they are with us. So I think with those companies, if nobody can come and do door-to-door and do their their social, their, their stats on how their this impact is affecting us, I think it could change a lot because they will understand what we are talking about. Because one of the only things they know is to make money and steal our minerals and they don't care who is affected and they don't mind. Because in the end of the day, we don't benefit anything. We cannot even create or develop things with our land. But we have those minerals. At least yeah, to do agriculture on our backyards, we can't even do that. Our water, it's, it's no longer right water. It makes us to be sick. So if our nature is being damaged, how we can change the situation. So I think if they can start maybe doing as Ikal's helping us with Wama Dojito and understand the wrong impact of them, whatever they are doing there, they will understand which what is our frustration. Thank you very much, Precious. I think that's a very important, the need for both from, I suppose, the community and civil society side, but also from forcing companies to actually do proper door-to-door surveys of, of impacts which points to possible a number of things, but including possibly strengthening the EIA regime to more expressly require these type of 
proper thorough surveys um, in, in, in the course of mining. But so my second speaker, I'm, I'm going to go continue in the same order. So again, Ramabina, you also have opportunity to kind of share your last thoughts. And, and the, the question that came to mind for me is your excellent methodology. How easily could it be adopted in, in at least in a certain form by many other communities in other parts of the country that might not have access to LARC, but that read your report and get the methodology and, and seek to contest mining and to, and to sh- and show mining how much mining will actually cost them in the process of the, the EIA process. Do you think it can be easily adopted, at least in a form, by, by, by communities resisting mining? Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Uh, I, said, I certainly think that uh, certain aspects of the methodology could be uh, adopted, not so much the, the quantifying part where communities bring to the fore, uh, you know, the type of resources that they find in their environment, areas of significance and the like. And that is very much important uh, to really bring to the fore those, those areas of significance, uh, those resources that are being utilized by the community. So that's important. In terms of the, the study as a whole, I mean, it took um, part of the research team, we had an anthropologist, we had an environmental uh, researcher who had quantitative skills uh, to be able to, to put this together. We had um, uh, somebody who also had sort of experience with uh, decision-making uh, and, 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 and communities under traditional authority. So it really took a lot. It was a project uh, that uh, all in all took us uh, close to three years to really bring to, to conclusion. And so what I wanted to, uh, to also just add uh, is that the MPRDA requires the minister to assess whether the applicant of a prospecting or mining right has sufficient access to, has sufficient access to financial resources before approving an application. The minister does not take into account the cost of physical or economic uh, displacement, even though those costs are significant. So mining companies repeatedly argue that they don't have sufficient financial resources to pay just and equitable compensation. What this effectively means is that mining affected communities are in effect uh, subsidizing the mining industry by being paid inadequate amounts for their economic and physical displacement. That cannot continue. You're also seeing it where mining is not leading people out of of impoverishment. The last point uh, is that because of the minister not considering this, uh, 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 the cost of relocations and the cost of economic displacement, what is then happening is that mining operations are deemed to be profitable, are deemed to have the necessary financial resources, whereas they not, which means that the, the mining, uh, certain mining companies would actually not be able to, to undertake their, 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 their mining operations if they were not undercutting the amount that is due to, to, to mining affected communities. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you very much, Rumabina. And for me, both you and Precious just underscore also Patrick's point that most mining is actually not economically non-viable and is only viable, made viable through a basically colonial-like forcible subsidy paid by communities. And finally, Patrick, I think in many ways that the, the, the wrapping up question I've already asked you, but um, regarding the programmatic demands and, and, and which you very eloquently described, but is there anything else that you would like to particularly the strategic implications of, 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 of your research regarding natural capital accounting that you haven't had a chance to express in the, in the conversation. Um, please share. Uh, yes, Ramapina and Precious are very much about those um, above-ground costs, uh, spiritual costs, costs that they will understand. Um, but I do hope that something called the Haberon Declaration and 2012, a meeting of uh, African leaders, including the then South African Minister of the Environment, Edna Malewa, they did agree, they were pushed and pulled, but they did agree that they would start uh, the process by which they would count the underground depleting wealth 
and the full cost accounts. And that would again include the massive damage to the, the climate from all of the coal-fired electricity that goes into the, the digging, the smelting, the processing, the transport of, of these minerals. And I really hope our communities start to say, hey, in that Cabron Declaration, which the South African government signed, there were commitments to give us more information about the full cost, the terrible damage done to our wealth and the damage done to our climate and the damage done to future generations by the way we're going about mining now. And that way, they'll find themselves in, um, let's say, a global uh, terrain. Some call it blockadia. Uh, that's Naomi Klein's great word to describe movements all over the world saying we have a right to say no because this doesn't make sense to us or to our societies. And in that sense, uh, as Mark Kutafani, the outgoing head of Anglo-American Corporation, right, the biggest mining company in Africa's history, and as he's divested from South Africa, sold, you know, past the trash like Anglo coal to local uh, black investors, tragically, as he's kind of trying to get out. One reason is because he's facing resistance. He even said that in 2015, he was suffering about um, $25 billion worth of blocked projects in mining uh, projects all over the world, which means there is a blockadia. We have something called the EJ Atlas ejatlas.org, and you can see uh, over 3,000 of these cases of people fighting against extractivism or pollution or some other environmental injustice. And it's linking them up, I think. It's taking the kind of you know strategy that uh, uh, we get from Precious's group, Wamua, and, and from Makua, and from Womin, stretching across the African continent, and from groups that are linking between uh, the extractive industries damage, the climate crisis, uh, their tactical capacity to block mines when they can. Uh, obviously, there's terrible repression, but the tactics of blockadia and the strategy of just saying, please, let's get full costing. So we all understand the terrible damage. We demand instead a just transition where the government can finance a genuine development strategy that isn't reliant upon wrecking the soil and wrecking the atmosphere and wrecking our water and wrecking our health and our bodies and uh, our men and our women and the sort of reproduction and migrant labor processes. Uh, it's just about time to go back to that 2012 have our own declaration and demand it be implemented, that we get the full costs. And once we put them into the equation, we tell these damn mining houses, foot sack. Thank you so much, Patrick. That's really powerful. And I think it's a it's a really important weapon, actually, that, that Haberon Declaration. Certainly in my work, it's something that I'm actually going to start bringing to the fore um, in, 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 in conversations with community partners and organizations. And I think... I think it's a potentially very powerful transitional demand to build a movement ultimately for revolutionary transformation and and an eco-socialist alternative. So yeah, thank you everybody for a really absorbing conversation. I think we could be here all day and I think it calls for many more podcasts, but also it, it really brings um, a lot of food for thought on making this community environmental justice sector a, a far more powerful and, and global one. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Hey, thanks, Ramabina. Thanks, Precious. What a great uh, mix of ideas. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Tell me a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.